Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is home to a thriving culinary scene based on products and traditions from the native Taino, African, and Spanish peoples that have influenced it. When you go, there are a host of restaurants, bars, breweries, distilleries, farms, and coffee houses to dig into, from five-star experiences to local favorites. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. We all know, from home cooks to restaurant chefs to eating enthusiasts, that the quality of your ingredients makes all the difference, especially when it comes to meat. Westholm, which is based in Queensland and the Northern Territory, Australia, is working with the land to create nature-led Australian Wagyu. They steward 16 million acres of rangeland, guided by the natural ecosystem where their cattle thrive. The result is high-quality Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of Northern Australia and a flavor suited to complement any cuisine. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash saver. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hello and welcome to Saver, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about seed banks or vaults. Ooh, seed vaults. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> uh, and this was inspired by a recent episode Lauren and I uh, nerded out. Uh, I think it was Peaches for our, our love of gene banks. Mm-hmm. And after that, we heard from a listener named Renee who works for the National Plant Germplasm System at the National Laboratory for Genetic Resource Preservation in Fort Collins. Um, very cool. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I, I love hearing from all humans, but when science humans write in, it's, it's perhaps particularly exciting because I'm like, oh, man, we— a, if it's not hate mail, then we're vaguely doing our jobs. And and B, um, yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I, I love it when the science humans are interested in the cultural side and vice versa. It makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. And um, Renee did say uh, whenever oh, the, the beautiful day when this pandemic is over, you can do tours. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's— so awesome and definitely want to do that one day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. All right. Yes. And there, there are quite a few seed banks around the world. I'm sure a lot of them do tours. So maybe where you are, they're still open. Um, and uh, seed banks do come up in a lot of our episodes. So uh, big topic, big important topic when it comes to food. It certainly is. Um, which brings us to our question. Seed banks. What are they? 
Well, a seed bank is a place where seeds are kind of scientifically Tupperwared for future study or or other use. Um, using more words than that, um, it's, a, it's a type of biorepository where the seeds of plants are cryogenically frozen to maintain seed viability, like you could grow it later. Um, thus, both preserving a, a genetic record of, of the evolution and the diversity of particular plants that humans use, and also preserving literally preserving those seeds so that they could be revived to grow a, a plant in the future. And that brings us to a sub-question, which yes. is, how? How? <laughs> well, uh, cryogenic freezing is a process where you reduce the moisture in a fresh sample of a living thing um, and then store it at a cold temperature. And if you do it right and maintain that low temperature, you can later rewarm and rehydrate the sample. And in the case of seeds, literally bring them back to life um, or bring them back to the potential for life which they have. Yes. yes. Uh, like, like you can germinate and grow a plant from seeds treated like this. And the moisture thing and the low temperature thing are both key. Like, uh, like you know what happens uh, to foods when you stick them in the freezer, how they can get, like, mushy sometimes when you warm them back up? That's because uh, water expands as it freezes, you know, um, and it can burst cell walls, which you don't want if you want the thing to live again. Um, so low moisture is good. And the low temperatures help prevent some chemical reactions from happening. Like, like you know how uh, sesame seeds or sunflower seeds that you forgot in the back of your cupboard taste off after a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's because fats degrade over time, especially at warmer temperatures. And both low moisture and low temperature help prevent microbes from, you know, eating the samples. I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying, but that is basically why cryogenics helps. Second sub-question. We have... A second sub-question? A Oy. rare second sub-question. <laughs> <laughs> and it is... Why? Well, uh, historically speaking, it's just interesting to see what plants have been like and how they've developed. But more practically, and, and the reason why seed banks exist, really, um, is that as farmers and researchers develop crops that have desirable traits for a particular time and place. Um, you know, the, the ability to grow in drier or wetter conditions, or in a certain type of soil, or to resist some specific kind of pest or pathogen, or for certain flavors, or, um, or for structural integrity so that you can, you know, ship the produce long distances. Whenever you do that, you're, you're honing the genes of that plant, which is great for, for the purpose that it's being bred for, but maybe someone in the future might want to grow that plant in a different soil condition or with different flavors or, you know, for canning instead of shipping. Or maybe, maybe honing it for those purposes turns out to make it vulnerable to new pests or pathogens that come around down the line. So having a record of a genetic strain um, and of different honings of that strain for other purposes on the farm next door or across the world, um, it becomes extremely valuable uh, because it lets you reintroduce genes that you have bred out of your strain. And 
This is especially important and, and, and valuable in these are modern times for a couple different reasons. Um, first, and perhaps most presently, because of the way that big commercial agriculture, influenced by globalization and the Industrial Revolution, changed the way that we grow our crops. Um, you know, we, we went from every farmer doing what worked best for them on a fairly small scale to these huge plantations where, you know, it, it's like you're you're thinking of it like a like a factory. Um, the the farm becomes a factory where it's the most profitable to produce one type of one thing and to produce the most of it that you can as reliably as you can. And that's called monocropping. And it's great in that it, it helps you feed the planet's continually growing population, um, especially when you're talking about staples like rice and wheat and corn. But it's also problematic for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it, it tends to be less environmentally friendly because growing a bunch of different things together actually helps with soil quality and pest control. But more directly pertinent to our conversation today, you've honed this plant down to one strain. And if you're a big enough producer, you're growing just this one strain all over the place and edging out your competitors and buying out other farms and using their land to grow your strain to the point that other strains and that valuable genetic material that they contain can be lost. And this can happen for, for non-capitalism-related purposes as well. Sometimes this one strain is valuable to, to, to many people just because of the wildly high yield that it produces under a range of conditions. But at any rate, it's in the long run bad for all of us. Um, because like if, if one of those new pests or say a global change in climate crops up, it can ruin this crop. And it's bad for humanity, like in that that crop is part of our food supply, and it's important that we're able to keep eating food. Yes. <laughs> it's the thing that we both enjoy and kind of need to do. Uh, and it, it can be a really big problem, um, because to feed our growing population, um, we may need to grow in the next 30 years, 50% more food, animal feed, and biofuel than we currently do in order to support humanity on this planet. Um, and, and we're not even truly supporting ourselves today. Um, over 100 million people worldwide are severely food insecure, to say nothing of the millions and millions more who are food insecure at, at less dire levels. Yes, and those are some pretty big numbers all <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's really cool that seed banks preserve the genetic diversity of plants. In conclusion, yes, that the, is... The TLDR version. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say here that it's not the only way to preserve genetic diversity. Um, and not all plants create seeds or, or, or seeds that are amenable to this type of storage. Um, and there are all kinds of other ways uh, to to preserve this stuff. Botanical gardens, uh, collections of tissue samples, collections of DNA. And one of the downsides of seed banks in particular is that because the expression of genes in a growing plant depends on the environment that that plant is raised in, uh, just preserving old seeds doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be able to get them to grow in strange new environments. Uh, uh, uh. Um, but... 
in general, seed banks are just really good at what they do. And so they constitute about 90% of these types of conservation efforts around the world as of today. And that is a good segue into our numbers section. Yes. Uh, Yes. From 1972 through 2010, 7.4 million seed samples have been preserved in about 1,750 seed banks globally. Of those samples, um, about 1.5 to 2 million are thought to be unique. (laughs) Oh, unique. (laughs) (laughs) According to the Millennium Seed Bank, one in five plant species faces extinction, which is another just kind of adding on why this is important. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. um, And since the 1900s, over 90% of fruit and vegetable varieties previously grown have been lost, have gone extinct. Um, Just for example, in the 1800s, American apple farmers were growing some 7,100 varieties of apples. And today, only 300 of those have survived extinction. Oof. Um, Yeah, yeah. And and we are a food show, and and a lot of the seeds preserved at these banks aren't necessarily food. Um, So there are about 250,000 known plant species in the world, and about 200 of those are cultivated for food. Uh, But but among those, there are hundreds of thousands of millions of varieties of these different things. And so uh, most of what is preserved in seed banks are food crops. There's uh, others that are uh, animal feed or for biofuel, or um, or that are otherwise related to what we do, like uh, like like wood for timber for construction and any other number of things. But but a great number of them are uh, are food plants. Yes, yes, and a surprisingly long history of this. Yeah, yes, um, and we will get into that right after we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm-hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks, but I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip yeah. together. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Hall. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people, 
And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. West Holm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholme.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ plus community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, by most accounts, the uh, oldest recognized seed bank in the world is the Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry, and it dates back to 1894 out of St. Petersburg, Russia, and it was the brainchild of biologist Nikolai Vavilov. So, he was a plant breeder, and because of that, probably other things, Uh, he understood the importance of crop diversity. And he went on to map eight centers of crop diversity, which was really fascinating to read, but not specifically related to this. However, if you want to check it out, it exists. In 1926, Favilov wrote, The Centers of Origin of Cultivated Plants. However, Vavilov came from wealth, and he wasn't exactly a friend of the Communist Party. And in 1940, he was arrested and hit with treason and espionage charges. Yeah, a really, really tragic story. Uh, Amazing thinker within uh, all of this discussion about about diversity of of crops. But yeah, didn't didn't turn out so great for him. No, for 11 months, he was tortured and interrogated. When his trial finally arrived, he was found guilty in five minutes and sentenced to death by firing squad. That later was changed to 20 years in prison, but Vavilov died of starvation within two years. Um, And just a 
other side note about this place. During World War II, researchers protected the seeds the seeds at the Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry from rats with rods and did not use them to feed the thousands of starving soldiers. They protected the seeds. They kept it up. Yeah, yeah. The idea of seed banks is way older than that, though, at least going back to the 16th century and probably even before of that. Some people argue you could include gardens um, sure. themselves in this whole conversation, and yeah, they yeah. go back yeah, to um, 3,000 years ago to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. So depending on where you lie on that school of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, during the 16th century, botanical gardens served as areas of academic study, specifically for medicinal plants. One of the first was the University of Pisa in 1543, and other Italian universities followed suit pretty soon after that. With colonization, explorers would bring back new crops. We've talked about that all the time. Oh, yeah. For these gardens. Not only were these plants used for study, but they were foundational for growing globalization of trade for products like chocolate and coffee. This is also when researchers and growers started experimenting with breeding crops to produce desirable traits, or I guess experimenting more in the like scientific way that we mm. think of it. <laughs> right. Just, oh, this, these two are good. See if we can... See if we put them out there and if something good happens. Yeah, because right. of, course, of course farmers had been doing that for literally ever. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> in 1858, Missouri Botanical Garden was established, one of the first botanical gardens in the United States. For colonists coming to the New World, um, seed preservation was a top priority. Thomas Jefferson once said, the greatest service which can be rendered to any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that whole dude. Gosh. That whole dude. <laughs> During the Civil War in 1862, Congress established the Department of Agriculture for the purpose of gathering, quote, new and valuable seeds and plants and to distribute them among agriculturalists. In 1898, the USDA put into place the Office of Foreign Seed and Plant Introduction, Uh, and 20 million seed packages were sent out a year to farmers. In the 1940s, regional seed banks were established across the U.S., focusing on specific crops like corn or potatoes. A decade later, a sort of national reserve of seeds was established in Fort Collins, Colorado. The history of seed banking starts in earnest in the 1960s when governments, NGOs, private and international organizations started investing heavily in conserving plant diversity with a particular focus on agricultural crops. And this uh, this is what's called the Green Revolution. And leading leading up to it, of course, you you had a lot of work um, in uh, in early like like genetics that was like, oh, genes are a thing, cool. Um, but specifically, what's going on here is that by the late 1950s, researchers were looking at, at the growth of the global population, along with the distribution of wealth among that population. Um, you know, the the continued stratification of the very wealthy from the very poor, along with the population just exploding. Land was becoming more scarce and therefore more expensive. And uh, by the 1940s and, and, and up through the 1950s, researchers were increasingly aware and, and, and warning that famine 
was going to kill hundreds of millions of people in developing areas of the world over the next two or three decades alone. Because basically, the the world had gotten to a point where the companies and the nations that could afford to create solutions to famine didn't have the monetary or intellectual, um, like, like research science incentive um, to do so. And so on the whole, they weren't. It's not to say that none of them were. There, there was some early work by like the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, um, that, was, that was doing some good out there. But, uh, but based partially on that, um, a few international organizations were founded to help drive the creation of those solutions um, and furthermore to incentivize them among, among the wealthier nations and, and companies that, you know, could, could stand to, to, to profit from them. Early research was in those grain staples, uh, corn and wheat and rice, um, and a lot of work was put into creating these crop strains that could produce more food on, on less land. And it worked, um, which is yay. Uh, As populations doubled over the next few decades, cereal staple production tripled uh, with only an increase in land use of 30%. So huzzah. Um, And that meant that, that despite these growing populations, food prices and hunger decreased. But... Um, but this also encouraged the ever larger use of ever fewer strains of some of these crops. Right. The National Academy of Sciences compiled a report in 1972 about the vulnerability of U.S. crops, and it found that 70% of the corn crop, for example, came from only six varieties of corn. A study conducted in 1983 found that since 1903, as reported by The New Yorker, quote, readily available varieties of cabbage dropped from 544 to 28. Carrots dropped from 287 to 21. Cauliflower varieties fell from 158 to 9. And varieties of pears fell from 2,683 to 326. So those are some pretty massive drops. Yeah. Um, okay, I I did want to talk about this because I didn't know it was a real thing. I thought this was a Seinfeld joke. Um, there is a whole <laughs> joke in Seinfeld about this. So the Man and the Biosphere <laughs> Program, or the MAB program, was launched in 1971. And it falls under the jurisdiction of UNESCO. And since its inception, there are now 621 biospheres in 117 countries. And the goal of these biospheres is to use the relationship between humans and their environment in order to preserve resources. So the Seinfeld episode is one of my favorite, very favorite Seinfeld episodes. It's called The Blood. Yes. And (laughs) George jokes that Elaine was chosen to represent uh, New York and the the <laughs> other the newest biosphere uh, experiment, but I also got it confused with something called biodome. Was that okay? Yeah. All right. So so biodome uh, was a film uh, starring Polly Shore. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> uh, it was not. It was not, I mean, it was a fictional film. <laughs> I thought, like, I had this vision in my head that it was like a sci-fi thing. 
Oh, no, no. This was like, like he gets like kind of stuck in this scientific experiment of, of, a, of a biosphere and like the researchers just have to deal with them. <laughs> and <laughs> have you seen this film? I never saw this movie, but um, but in in looking it up, I have uh, come to realize that that it had uh, cameo appearances from celebrities such as Kylie Minogue um, and Rose McGowan, and also it was the first time that they that uh, Tenacious D appeared on what? screen uh, as such together. Okay. None of this is making any sense to me. I, my brain is like faltering <laughs> to process this, what this is. You gave me little Yachty and Donnie Osmond in our last episode, and now I got Tenacious D and Polly Shore in a research dome experiment <laughs> with yeah. Kylie Minogue. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was it was a kind of a whole cultural phenomenon that a lot of people were. It, it was making big headlines in the 1990s because uh, uh, some some science humans and some like non science humans would would uh, either volunteer or be chosen or whatever to uh, to go hang out, like be sealed into these domes for a while, and kind of see what happened. I it's guess like so it was like the real world, but <laughs> yes. With more science. We're on the same page. Okay. (laughs) Wow. I was not expecting a Tenacious D reference to come up in here. You know, neither was I. Uh, (laughs) And and I thought for a second it might have been Carrot Top, not Polly Shore. But... Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. I might have to look this up. I don't know. It sounds like the very 90s type of comedy movie. Yeah, from all the trailers I remember seeing, it was very slapstick, very goofy. I mm. think that e- even like like middle school, high school Lauren felt somehow above this film. <laughs> so, all right, all right. I I still I've got to know. I've got to know. Yeah, I did. On the other side of this, I think it was the Titan A.E., which is a movie I loved as a kid. I think that movie ends with they find, like, Earth 2, and it's basically a big seed vault. Like, it has all those. Oh, yeah. I think. there's uh, Some movie ends that way where they find, like, a backup Earth, and it has all yeah. these. Yeah. Huh. Um, and I, I suppose uh, Waterworld was also, in a small way. Oh, my gosh. About a very <laughs> similar theme. <laughs> Another film, like cultural touchstone, I missed, but I uh, have heard a lot about it. <laughs> oh wow! Oh, I hope that this is on your list of terrible movies. Uh, because Good fun, terrible it is, movies. It is truly a terrible movie. Um, okay, and I feel like you would enjoy the watching of it in a very popcorn and and box of wine kind of way. Oh. Enough said. I am into it. You sold me. <laughs> People are like, watch this excellent award-winning film. Eh, watch this very bad movie, but you'll like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a lot of, uh, of, of, of what are they called? Are they jet skis? The things? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the live action show at Universal, so I got some kind of 
image in my head. They, well, they use jet skis. How do I know if they actually do in the movie? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, they, they use, they use a lot of jet skis. It's, you know. Wow. No agriculture, but lots of jet skis. That's what the film is basically about. <laughs> so they preserve the important thing, the jet skis. <laughs> Wow, this this was a cultural tangent I was not expecting in the seed bank episode. Um, uh, <laughs> but you're welcome, everyone. There's some a variety of things to try out there, maybe, if you're looking for entertainment. Yep. Something for everyone. Uh, <laughs> perhaps not a good thing for everyone, but hey. All right, uh, okay. Back to the history of seed vault. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have the the Seed Savers Exchange, um, which was founded in 1975, and their mission is to, because they're still around today, um, conserve and promote America's culturally diverse but endangered food crop heritage for future generations by collecting, growing, and sharing heirloom seeds and plants. And nowadays, they are one of the largest seed banks in North America, and they manage several seed bank locations outside of their headquarters in Iowa. Then uh, the slow food movement, uh, very briefly, began in the 1980s, prescribing neo-gastronomy and a a slower, more thoughtful approach to food. But in in 2003, members of Slow Food International created the Slow Food Foundation for Biodiversity. The 1980s is also when community seed banks started popping up. The Convention on Biological Diversity took place in 1993, And then uh, the Millennium Seed Bank that we mentioned earlier, uh, located in Wakehurst, England. The Millennium Seed Bank partnership was started by the Royal Botanic Gardens in 2000 and has gone on to preserve 10% of wild plant species, boasting over 1 billion seeds from 130 countries. Their 2020 goal was to be home to one-fourth of the global bankable plants. And I went on this whole, like, well, did they do it? And I was trying to find it everywhere. I forgot. It's still 2020. Uh, Still a work in progress. (laughs) Believe it or not, it is still 2020. Um, Oh, gosh. Yeah. So maybe we'll check back in. (laughs) And then in February 2008, Svalbard International Seed Vault opened up its doors for storage. And this is also known as the Doomsday Vault. Ah. Ah. Although the founder... Pretty much he's known as the founder. Carrie Fowler prefers Library of Life, <laughs> which is also good. Also excellent. They're, they're both really nice. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, okay, get this. This seed bank is located inside a frozen Arctic mountain in Norway, a location that can survive pretty much whatever is thrown at it from earthquakes to bombings. Um, it's meant to be this kind of global backup system. Seeds provided from seed banks all over the world are kept there. Black box protocols are used for these seeds. The seed packages won't be opened or tested, and no one person knows all the vault codes required for entry. It is a serious place, y'all. Um, and a really cool one. Literally. Ugh. Oh, sorry. Um, hi. Uh, it, it's kept at negative 18 degrees Celsius. But yes, it's built into this mountain in a permafrost climate zone, like 800 miles, that's 1,300 kilometers, north of the Arctic Circle. Um, so that it hypothetically can keep cool, even if it loses power, even for a long period of time. Um 
A recent deposit of seeds included samples from the Cherokee Nation Seed Bank. They have their own seed bank as well, um, including their oldest and most sacred corn variety, which like they brought with them on the Trail of Tears. Um, wow. It's a it's a it's a really it's a really fascinating place, and I think we could probably do an entire episode just on just on 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 any of these. There are like so many little seedlings of other episode yes. ideas in here. That but anyway, yes. yeah. Yes, and if you are really impatient and you want to know more about that right now, um, there is an interview with the founder on uh, Fresh Air um, with Terry Gross. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting. I think he said that if you look up the closest town to there, to this seed bank, it's literally home to almost every, like, furthest northern bathroom, furthest northern bar. Like, <laughs> it's, it's up there. It's up there. Um, and and just hearing the logistics of having people there uh, and building yeah. it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. In recent years, wars have led to the destruction of seed banks in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, with researchers scrambling to establish new seed banks in their stead. And then hurricanes like Maria have also been a problem. Yeah, uh, climate change in general has been adding wrinkles to the to the operation of seed banks. Uh, back in 2017, melting permafrost flooded an access tunnel at Svalbard. Um, luckily, the water refroze before it got into the actual vault. But yeah, they've spent some $20 million over the past three years, uh, like waterproofing everything and upgrading the cooling systems. Uh, because, yeah, yep. Yep, it is... Very important and very fascinating stuff going on in this world of seed banks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and although I didn't read anything specifically about it, maybe I wasn't using the right search terms or, or, or you know, I just didn't look specifically for it, but I really wonder how much of uh, the fear of nuclear war and uh, the, the the Cold War right. played into the original development of seed banks and, yeah. uh, and and the conceptualization there. That would make a lot of sense. Um, I feel like I won a geography question just by why were they digging in, into this huge mountain and putting stuff in there in eighth grade just by being like, what, what, around what time was this? Oh, oh nuclear yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, and certainly there are a bunch of really, we, we mentioned some of the big seed banks in here, but there are a bunch of them doing really cool stuff. And, and some of them are both global, but pretty specific to where they are. Um, so mm-hmm. if you're interested, you can look that up there. There are a lot of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you have a particular uh, interest in any one of them and really want to uh, to hear us talk about it, then, you know, write in and let us know. Yes. And speaking of, we do have some listener mail for you. Mm-hmm. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy piña colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. (laughs) I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. 
But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a saver team trip together. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go. And I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Hall. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with <gasps> Listener Mail. It was like a dome. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was so clear, but apparently my my small closet space isn't the best for making a dome. <laughs> I was like, is this a mushroom? We weren't talking about mushrooms, but I like mushrooms. Okay, oh, what? Yeah. I, yeah, which a mushroom is 
dome adjacent. It's true. So, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> and this first topic is the first listener mail fits in with uh, well, a lot of what we've been talking about, but some stuff I wasn't even expecting us to talk about, but we did. Bobby wrote, if I may suggest a topic, food irradiation. So... Oh. I worked at Sandia National Lab as an undergrad, and while I was there, the gamma irradiation facility was being used to irradiate oranges for different companies in a huge lead-lined room with a huge cobalt-60 source. Also, we did experiments in undergrad where we would irradiate strawberries and compared them over two weeks, then a month, to non-irradiated strawberries. It was still fresh. I think people get really nervous about food irradiation, but it's a great way to keep food from spoiling without using pesticides and is used commercially. So, yes. Yes. I would love to do an episode on that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that that sounds sounds super fascinating. Um, It's not something I've particularly looked into before. And also sounds like a d- terrific headache. <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that, yes. that that fun that I get this specific headache whenever I try to talk about uh, radiation. So that's oh, good. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> uh, no, I, I it genuinely is really really fascinating. Um, so yeah, adding it to the list. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie wrote. I have been a huge Savor fan since the very first episode of Food Stuff. I love learning new tidbits of food trivia, and your side tangents are always delightful. However, none delighted me quite as much as one you shared during the Funky Green Onion episode. When I saw it come up in my queue, I thought to myself, ooh, I wonder if they'll talk about Farfetch'd. But my expectations were low because I figured leaks were one of those this-needs-its-own-episode situations. When you started to bring up Pokemon, I couldn't believe it. My wish was coming true. I have always thought Farfetch'd and his leak were completely adorable. I regularly refer to him as Leak Bird, which makes my husband roll his eyes every time. And I like to imagine him using his leak to make himself soup at the end of a long day of battles. Though I was a bit horrified to learn that the duck and the leak on its back both go into the soup in the original proverb, it was really cool to find out the inspiration behind one of my favorite Pokemon. Okay. So, so many of you have written in about this. We love it. Um, we yes. will be reading more of them over the, the coming weeks. Uh, um, but, okay, I have learned through some of these that there are a ton of food-based Pokemon. Like, a lot. Um, and we are always happy to go on these nerd tangents and bring up Pokemon. Yeah. Whatever possibility. Uh, Super Producer Andrew, I'm counting on you. If we miss one, (laughs) you've got to let us know. Uh, But yeah, we are so happy to go on these tangents. And I was very thrilled myself when you brought it up, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Completely, yeah. Uh, Yeah, maybe. And we've we've gotten requests for, like, overall, like, for food of Pokemon. Pokemon or like food and Pokemon maybe because it's it's a weird little universe uh, with some strange things that you can eat and some strange yeah strange critters so mm-hmm. uh, well, apparently there's one <laughs> Poltergeist and it's a pot of a tea. With a poltergeist in it? <laughs> poltergeist? <laughs> Are you telling me? We got to talk about that. <laughs> I, I, you can't give me that piece of information and not expect me to spend way too long researching it. Yeah. 
Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh my heck. Okay. Yeah, just just the just the 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 different puns in different languages alone yeah. is enough to make me want to look into all of this. Yes. Uh so okay. Two solid episode ideas right there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. thank um, you both. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, we would love to hear from you listeners. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. Or you can get in touch via uh, social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at SaverPod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.